Well, this is one of the strangest paragraphs in all of Matthew. I mean, if we're honest, I don't know if you've uh, read this before and you're like, well, what is, what is this all about? What is going on here? Uh, it is a difficult part in Matthew, and yet I believe um, it, the context of what is, has been happening in Matthew and what will happen in Matthew clears it up. Just to remind you a little bit, um, we have seen um, up to this point in Matthew from, say, the, uh, Matthew 14 on through Matthew 16, we've seen the camera lens, and Matthew's camera lens uh, focus on different groups and where they believe the Messiah is. And Jesus himself kind of, or really the disciples, kind of summarized that in Matthew 16, 13, uh, when Jesus asked, who do the people say that I am? And essentially the answer is, uh, he's a great prophet. He's a great prophet. That's how the crowds, not the scribes and the Pharisees, they're opposed, but the crowds, that's how they're answering, Jesus is a great prophet. And then in that, right after that, we saw Peter as kind of the spokesman for the disciples confess that Jesus is the Christ, the ultimate Davidic king, the one who will rule over all Israel and all the world. He is that ultimate king, and he is the son of the living God because he is God the Son. And then immediately after that, in 1621 uh, through 1723, there's this section where Jesus is focusing on He's focusing on his suffering. He begins with a prediction in 1621, and it ends with a prediction in 1722 and 23 that he's going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to suffer, and he's going to die, and he's going to rise again. And the disciples are not having it. That's not what they want to hear. They don't want to hear about a suffering Messiah. They want to talk about the Messiah's glory, but they don't want a suffering Messiah. So Jesus talks to them about the um, cost of discipleship, take up your cro- disown yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And uh, he backs that by showing them that the glory that will come through the suffering through the, is shown through the transfiguration. So we've seen all that. Now, I also remember, remind you of another thing that is happening in Matthew. You remember Matthew structures his whole gospel around five main discourses of Jesus, five main teaching sections where Jesus speaks a great deal. He's teaching his disciples. Uh, and that goes along with the way Matthew's going to end um, the Great Commission, go make disciples by baptizing uh, uh, people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And a lot of that teaching is summarized in those five discourses. Well, the next discourse is in Matthew 18. It's coming up. In fact, we'll start that, Lord willing, next week. And what you have to understand is that discourse is going to talk about, it's going to talk about the community of disciples. It's going to talk about those who have repented and placed their faith in Jesus. It's going to talk about those who have taken up their cross and are following Jesus. How are they going to interact? What are they supposed to be like? How are they supposed to live with each other and interact with each other? So that's Matthew 18. So we've seen what's come before this little section in 1724 through 27, and we know what's coming after So what is this section all about? And I'll argue this morning that this section is actually setting up for that discourse. What this section has to deal with, even though it's kind of strange on the surface of it, it sets up for what that community, uh, where that community, the the community that Jesus is going to address, the disciples whom Jesus is going to address and how they're to live together in Matthew 18, this little section talks about what forms that community, and where that community's loyalty lies. 
And that's where we're going this morning. The idea, the main idea of this text this morning is this, direct your loyalty to the Messiah's temple, but do not give unnecessary offense to outsiders. That's where we're going this morning. That's the main idea of the text that Matthew has for us. Direct your loyalty to the Messiah's temple, but do not give unnecessary offense to outsiders. Look at verse 24, and we see there's kind of, we can break this down into three little, little sections. And the first section we see in verses 24 through 27 is this, a question of loyalty to the temple, a question of loyalty to the temple. Verse 24, when they came to Capernaum. Now, where, who's the they? The they is the disciples. Uh, last week in 1722 through 23, talks about how the disciples are gathering in Galilee. They're gathering uh, in Galilee. Jesus, before this, was on the Mount of Transfiguration. We're not sure exactly where that was, but right before that, he was up in the way north near Caesarea Philippi, uh, kind of outside of uh, uh, Jewish territory. And that's where Peter made his confession and all of that. But now they've come back down to Galilee. And now we're even more specific in the text this morning. They're in Capernaum. And Capernaum is the city that Jesus has adopted as his hometown, as his base of operations. This is where he has been um, and operated out of for much of his ministry that we have seen. Yes, he's gone all over and around Galilee, but this has been kind of his home base. Now they're back. Why are they back? Well, they're gathering here. They're preparing for the journey to Jerusalem, which is where the rest of Matthew will take us geographically. It'll take us into Jerusalem and ultimately, as Jesus has predicted, to his suffering and death. So they're in Capernaum. And then who shows up? The collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter. Now, before we go any farther, we have to understand what is being referenced here. You remember that Matthew's audience is Jewish Christians, probably uh, in and around Palestine. And uh, they would have, uh, Matthew's audience just would have immediately understood what is being referenced here by this tax. Uh, whereas we, uh, separated by a couple thousand years of history and dif uh, difference in culture and all of that, we have to do some background work. We have to do some legwork to understand what is happening here. What is this? Well, um, first off, what is happening here has its background in the Old Testament. It happens in the Old Testament. So you can turn in your Bibles back to Exodus, way back into Exodus, to see the start of the background of this tax. Uh, and what we'll find out, this isn't a tax per se, um, exactly, it's not exactly a tax, but um, we'll, we'll walk, work through the background so that you can see what's going on here. Okay, so turn back to Exodus 30, and we're going to read verses 11 through 16. This is in the middle of the, the, the giving of stipulations for the tabernacle and how it's to be constructed and how it's supposed to operate. So in the middle of, of that, we get Exodus 30, verses 11 through 16. Yahweh said to Moses, When you take, a census, take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to Yahweh when you number them, that there may be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel 
according to the shekel of the sanctuary, the shekel is 20 giras, half a shekel as an offering to Yahweh. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more, the poor shall not give less than half the half shekel when you give Yahweh's offering to make atonement for your lives. You shall take atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before Yahweh so as to make atonement for your lives. Now, what is the situation here? Situation is any time that Israel takes a census, numbers people from 20 years old and upwards. And what is supposed to happen is because God owns everyone's life in Israel, he has redeemed them, he's purchased them for themselves, and so as to avoid a plague coming upon them, they might uh, in pride take a census and a plague might outbreak. In fact, that's what happens in uh, first, uh, 2 Samuel 24. David takes a census and a plague breaks out because he doesn't he does it out of pride and the wrong motives. But God gives stipulations. When you take a census like this, give a certain amount of money, half a shekel, for atonement. And this is the background of the beginning of the backgrounds for the tax that is um, referenced in Matthew. Now, there's a couple other developments that we need to talk about um, uh, elsewhere in the scriptures and outside of the scriptures, but this is the background. You're supposed to take this atonement money, and notice what it's for. Uh, yes, it's for atonement for people's lives to represent that my life, I need a ransom for my life in order to live before Yahweh, but then this money is taken, and then it is used for the support of the tent of meeting, uh, the tabernacle, the temple. Okay, so that is what this money gets used for. It gets used for the support of the temple. Um, now, notice what Exodus says. This happens when you take a census. So it's not a tax per se. It kind of is, but it's not like a regular, it doesn't even specify here how often are you supposed to do this? How often are you supposed to number the people of Israel? Is this supposed to be something that we do every year, every couple years, every 10 years? It doesn't specify. It just says anytime you do it, whether it's initiated by God or whether it's initiated by man, this is how you do it. And it's recorded at the end of Exodus that they do this in an initial way. They get, it gives the number, and it gives the number of people, um, and it gives the number of, amount of money to support the tabernacle as it's being built, as it's being instituted. It also seems like the census that's recorded at the end of Exodus is the same one that's recorded at the uh, beginning of Numbers, uh, which is where Israel is being mustered. It's being mustered for its military uh, to go in and conquer the promised land. Now, I bring that up uh, for one, one reason, to make a further note that at least according to Numbers 1, if it is indeed the same census that is mentioned here, the Levites don't get numbered along with everyone else. Why is that? Well, it's because the Levites belong to God and to his service. They're the ones that are operating the temple structure, the, temp the tabernacle, and all of its things. So it's those outside of the Levites in Israel who support the temple, but the Levites, at least it seems like initially, and the priests are exempt from this tax. And I'll bring that up again later uh, on. Now, further development happens. Turn in your Bibles to ne Nehemiah 10. Bet you haven't been in Nehemiah in a little while. Maybe if you were reading through the Bible this year, you read through this. 
Now, Nehemiah is set uh, a a long time uh, later, uh, about a thousand years later, actually, from what's going on in Exodus. What's going on in Nehemiah is after Israel has gone into exile and some of them have come back, not all of them, like was prophesied in the prophets, uh, but uh, some of them have come back into Israel from the exile and they are trying to rebuild. They're trying to rebuild the temple. They're trying to rebuild... um, the city. They're trying to rebuild their community, really. And in that connection, they understand Nehemiah 9 kind of runs through Israel's history to this point, and they understand that they're in the situation they're in, a bad situation, because of their sin, because of their disobedience to God's law. But what they're doing in Nehemiah 10, then, is they are committing themselves, they are committing themselves as a community to obey God's law in the Old Testament so that they might be the people who God wants them to be, so that they might function in relation to the world as a kingdom of priests in the way that God wants them to. And in the midst of that, in Nehemiah 10, we get verses 32 and 33, which connect with this temple tax idea. Uh, Nehemiah 10, 32 says this, We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offerings, the regular burnt offerings, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. Uh, What's going on here? Well, it has as its background what we just read in Exodus. That is the foundation of what is happening here. However, you do see a couple changes, don't you? One, the thing is now supposed to be taken yearly. And it's not in connection with a census anymore. It's just, all right, we're going to yearly go to everyone and ask for a third of a shekel. The money amount differed probably because of uh, fluctuations in monetary value through time. And they decided, all right, we're going to do a third of a shekel rather than a half. That a third is sufficient. So what you see here is really... Uh, the community, and especially the priests, are looking back at the Exodus 30 principle, and they're saying, well, let's take some of those principles of supporting the house of God when there's a census, and let's just do that yearly. Uh, God has a principle there. Um, He likes uh, uh, for the temple to be supported, so we're just going to make sure that that's a yearly contribution uh, so that things can continue to operate with the temple. And uh, if you fast forward even a little bit, this is about 450 B.C. when Nehemiah is written. Uh, and so if you fast forward um, to maybe a uh, hundred or so years before Jesus' time, this tax, this operation was taken um, into account yearly in Palestine, and not only in Palestine, but in all the Jewish diaspora that had been spread abroad because of the, the exile, And there would be collectors sent out before the month before Passover, the month before Passover to collect this amount for the service of the temple that is in Jerusalem. And that's what's going on in Matthew 17. So the month before Passover, some of the officials, the representatives of the temple system in Jerusalem, they would send out people and they would go to individual cities in Palestine. They would even go out to the diaspora in the larger Mediterranean world and they would collect from Jews uh, this amount of money for the support of the temple 
in Jerusalem. What's incidentally, right, like I said, this is happening the month before Passover. So we get kind of a sense of the time frame of how close we are to Jesus going into Jerusalem for his final suffering and death. Now, you might be like, okay, that's kind of interesting history, but what's the big deal? Why do we care? Why is Matthew including this? Well, here's the thing. To understand the significance of what's going on and this tax and supporting the temple, you have to also understand the significance of the temple. The temple's a big deal in the biblical narrative. In fact, uh, it starts, as we've discussed this before in other, other times and uh, other texts, that the Garden of Eden was set up in such a way that it was a temple. It was on top of a mountain. Adam walked with God. He had fellowship with God. Um, and there was, uh, ultimately, after they were cast out of God's presence, there were cherubim guarding the way into this beautiful garden temple. And then you look at the tabernacle and then later the temple, and you see imagery in those things that calls back to Eden. You see palm trees and pomegranates and beautiful colors and cherubim in the tabernacle and in the temple structure. Why is that? Because the whole thrust is how can a sinful man, how can sinful human beings dwell with a holy God? They do it through the temple. They do it through sacrifice to be able to draw near to God's presence. That is what mankind is, is, is mankind's greatest joy and hope to dwell, to bask in the glorious presence of the holy God. It happened initially in Eden. Uh, the fall separated that presence so that now you can't get close to a holy God except through very elaborate and difficult um, uh, rules and regulations and through sacrifice. But if you want to draw near to God on earth, you come to the temple. And so it makes sense then, well, okay, we need to then support the temple, which is what this tax is all about. So under, to understand what is happening here in the text, you have to understand not only, okay, where did this tax come from, but also the significance of the temple. And like I said, it's not exactly, and by Jesus' day, it's not exactly a tax, because no one was officially compelled to do this, nor was these monies going to the Roman government. These monies were not going to the Roman government, and the gov uh, Rome was the government at that time. So this is not a tax, this is a support for the temple. And the idea was, if you're a good and godly and devout Jew, and if you are loyal to the temple, if you show solidarity with the temple, if you are um, valuing the temple, and by extension, valuing drawing near to God, which is how you do it, you do it through the temple system, then you pay this tax. That's what you do as a good and godly, devout Jew. Now, with that background in mind, we can go back to the narrative and understand a little bit better about what's going on and its significance. So let's start from the top, 1724 in Matthew. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the true drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? Now, uh, notice they're a little bit unsure. They're a little bit unsure. Is Jesus going to pay this tax? Why are they unsure? Well, um, a couple things. Like I said, it wasn't necessarily obligatory in an official sense. 
Uh, in a sense, it was still voluntary for Jews, and there were people that disputed whether they actually needed to pay this tax, whether it was actually part of the law or not. People near the Dead Sea in Qumran said, oh, you only need to pay this once in your lifetime, not once a year. Uh, so there's that aspect, but there's also this. These collectors are coming from the temple. They're Sadducees or scribes of some such. They represent the official religious leadership. Well, Jesus, by this point in Matthew, has had plenty of run-ins with the religious leadership, not only in Galilee, but also in Jerusalem. So these people, there's good reason for them to ask the question, okay, your teacher, and here, the your here in the original is actually plural. Does your, that your is actually plural, and so the, the, the collectors are coming up to Peter, and they recognize, okay, there's a group of disciples around Jesus whom he's teaching. Does this group, does this group, and this group has had run-ins, especially Jesus has had run-ins with the official religious leadership, is your teacher not pay the tax? And the way they ask the question, there's some uncertainty, but they are, they still believe that he is going to pay the tax. Does your teacher not pay the tax? I mean, he is, right? That's how we would ask it. He's going to pay the tax, right? They still expect that. And how does Peter? Remember, Peter means stone. He's that foundation stone in the temple structure that Jesus is building. How does Peter, as kind of the, the representative spokesman for the disciples, and in this case, for his master, how does he answer? Verse 25, first part, he said, yes. No questions, no qualifications, nothing. Jesus, uh, Peter understands what is going on here. This isn't just a question of, are you going to pay? This is a question of loyalty. Are you loyal? Are you going to give, as a good, devout Jew, are you going to give the tax to support the temple system? Are you loyal? Peter doesn't have any qualms. He understands. He's a, he's a good Jew. He's a devout Jew. And he's like, yeah, absolutely. No questions. Jesus is going to pay this amount. So that is what we see as the kind of first movement in the section. There's a question of loyalty to the temple. And next we move in the last part of verse 25 through 26, we see this, freedom of the sons from obligation. Freedom of the sons from obligation. So P Peter says this, and then look at what happens as the dialogue or the, the, the scene progresses. And when he came into the house, now whose house? Um, it could be Peter's house. could be that's where their base of operations is. That's possible. But they have a house, um, and they're gathering there. He came into the house. P Jesus spoke to him first, saying. Now, when it says Jesus spoke to him first, it's actually the idea that Jesus anticipates Peter. Jesus anticipates Peter. Meaning what? Peter has just had this interchange with the collectors of this tax, and um, he, it's on his mind, and he's going to go talk to Jesus about it. And what does Jesus do? Jesus get, beats him to the punch. He talks to him about it first. When he came to the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? So he's, he's going to give a thought experiment to Simon to think through. What do you think, Simon? From whom... Do kings of the earth take toll or tax? And you could also render that take dues or head tax, census tax. Remember, this is where this originally came from, the idea of 
You're going to go to each individual and collect a certain amount of money. So it's a rhetorical question, and then Jesus says, all right, from, from whose sons are the kings of the earth going to take toll or tax? From their sons, the king's sons, or from others? And the idea from others here is you're picturing a king in his kingdom. You're picturing the king has the royal family. Is he going to take tax from his own royal family, or is he going to take tax from anyone else, any of the other citizens, any of the other sons of the citizens in his realm? That's the question. Now, uh, this phrase, kings of the earth, it's just talking about earthly kings. It is a phrase that's used in the Old Testament, and it is used quite often, and it's used quite often in a way to talk about earthly kings versus God as king, as the ultimate king of heaven. We need to keep that in mind. But at least what what, uh, Jesus is doing is he's getting Peter to think about, just think about earthly kings in general. Uh, They might even be kings that are opposed to the king of heaven and, uh, uh, and his aims and his purposes. But just think about earthly kings and how they operate. Are they gonna take tax from their own sons, from the royal family, or are they going to take it from everyone else? Those are your options. And what does Peter answer? Verse 26, and when he said, from others, and that is the correct answer. We know that to be true, right? Uh, it's a little bit different for us in, a, uh, in our country, in our time, in our place, but if you think about history and you just think about human nature, if you're the king and you got your royal family and you're the one collecting taxes, Are you going to to exempt yourself and your family, or are you going to exempt others? Of course, you're going to exempt yourself from the tax, and you're going to tax others. And so Peter answers, yeah, of course you're going to tax others. And then what does Jesus say to him? Then the sons are free. Now, what does he mean by free here? He means free from obligation, free from tax. You're tax-free is the idea of what Jesus is saying. And Jesus actually, um, he's drawing the conclusion from what Peter has said. Okay, Peter, you think he's taking from others, and Jesus affirms that. Then indeed, the sons are free. Now, what is Jesus doing? He's forming a sort of mini parable to get Peter to think about the situation with the temple tax collectors. And what you've got to be able to do with a parable, and if we've done this before, we did it a lot in Matthew 13, is you have to be able to look at the picture that Jesus is drawing. So what's the picture Jesus is drawing? He's drawing this picture of earthly kings and them taxing people. You have to be able to look at that common picture, and then you have to be able to correspond it with what Jesus is referring to and what he's teaching about in reality. So the key questions here are, well, who are the sons that are free? Because that's where the emphasis lies. Okay, the kings of the earth aren't going to tax their own family. They're going to exempt them. Their sons are indeed free. But Jesus is trying to draw a point from that. What point is he drawing? Well, we get some help from verse 27. We're not going to explain all of that here. But suffice it to say that in verse 27... Jesus gives instructions to Peter to pay the tax. And notice how verse 27 starts. However, or but. Meaning what? 
Jesus is contrasting what he is telling Peter to do in verse 27 with what he just said about the sons being free, which implies what? If he's telling Peter to go pay the tax for me and for you, that's what he ultimately says in verse 27, and he's saying that's a contrast to what he just said in verse 26, then the logical implication is that he is saying that himself, the Messiah, and the disciples are the sons being referred to. Do you see how that works? He's contrasting, in verse 27, uh, he's contrasting with what happened in verse uh, 26. In verse 27, he says, okay, go pay the tax. But that stands in, con- uh, in distinction from what he said in verse 26, the sons are free. Who are the sons then? The sons must be Jesus and the disciples. And that fits with Matthew's conceptual framework, right? He's, he's, he's had no problems, and a lot of the narrative throughout has been emphasizing Jesus is the Son of God. But not only so, not only is that the case, but the disciples are Jesus' family. He calls them in uh, the end of Matthew 12, he calls them, here is my family, here are my brothers and sisters and mother, here's my closest family. We know that Jesus, as the Son, is the Son of the Father, but the disciples, those who have repented and following Jesus, they are also family. And Jesus not only says that, he also says that um, in, uh, throughout Matthew's gospel, he's made it clear that you, disciples, should address God as Father, meaning what? You're part of the royal family. And so what is Jesus' logic here? He's saying, just think about what the kings of the earth do. The kings of the earth exempt the royal family and they tax others. Well, what is the kings of the earth being paired with? The kings of the earth is being compared, in this case, with the king of heaven. And the king of heaven actually does the same thing. Just what you do. If um, the kings of the earth are going to behave this way, the king of the he- heaven is going to behave this way. The domain of the temple belongs to the king of heaven. That's what, who, who the temple and the temple people, like the Levites, belong to. You remember back in the original context of Exodus 30 and Numbers 1, who got exempted from that census tax? It was the Levites. It was those who belonged to God and who belonged to the temple system. And so Jesus is drawing an implication from that. He's saying it's the same way. It's the same way with your Father in heaven. You are free. Now remember what we said, paying this tax is not just about paying the money. It's a sign of loyalty and devotion to the temple. So for Jesus to say to his disciples, you guys are free no tax obligation to that temple there in Jerusalem, that is a massive statement. That is a massive statement. To say that you are not obligated to the temple that God himself had set up under the old covenant system to be able to approach and draw near God, and you're not obligated as sons You're not obligated to those who are connected with me as the Son of God. You're not obligated as those who are sons of the Father who is in heaven to that 
temple. It is massive. It is massive. But this goes along with something else that is happening in the Gospel of Matthew, and that is the idea of the temple itself. Remember, from, from, there's always been a temple. Garden of Eden was a, the archetypal temple. It was the, the premier, the first temple, so to speak. And then there is the tabernacle, and then there is the temple building. There's always been a temple because there, how do you draw near to God? You need a sacred place and a sacred time to draw near to God. And what has been happening and developing in Matthew with the temple is that the temple is now shifting. It's shifting location. Back in Matthew 12, 6, when Jesus is talking to the scribes and the Pharisees, he says this, something greater than the temple is here. Meaning what? Jesus, in his mission, is accomplishing atonement. He is dying for, he is going to die for his people's sin. He's going to rescue from his people's sin because he is that suffering servant in Isaiah that atones for his people's sin as the ultimate king. He's going to do that. And so what he's accomplishing in his mission is greater than what the physical temple on earth was supposed to accomplish. You'd have, to always, you'd have to regularly come to the temple to sacrifice, to be able even to, to, to know God from a distance. But what Jesus is doing in his atoning work is he is rescuing his people so that they can ultimately draw near to God, as Hebrews would say, in complete boldness and without fear. Something greater than the temple is here. And even more recently, if we think back to Matthew 16... Matthew 16, right after Peter confesses Jesus to be the Christ, the ultimate Davidic king and the son of God, what does Jesus say in verse 18? And I tell you, you are Peter, you're a stone, and on this rock, this foundation stone, I will build my assembly, my church. Church just means assembly, ecclesia. And what we spent time there developing, and I hope you remember this, is that the ultimate Davidic king, the Messiah, the Christ, he was known for, in the Davidic covenant, doing one particular thing. He was known for building or being the builder of one particular thing, a temple. And so when we read in Matthew 16, on this rock I will build my assembly, we are to understand that the Messiah is going to build a temple, and this temple is going to be built up of people. That's why it's called an assembly, a church. And it's going to be built up of people like Peter who confess Jesus to be the Christ, the Messiah. What does all that amount to? It amounts to the fact that with Jesus coming in the shift from Old Covenant to New Covenant, the temple and where the temple is located is also shifting. It's shifting away from the old covenant system of sacrifices, which God himself set up, there was nothing wrong with it, but it was ultimately inadequate, and Jesus is setting up a better temple. And so even in that small statement, you're free. You, the sons, those who are connected with me, the Messiah, and you're connected with your Father in heaven, you are free from obligation to the Old Testament temple it goes along with this shift. The temple is moving. Where is it moving to? 
it is moving to a people, the new covenant people, the people who trust, entrust themselves to the Messiah, both for his, who he is as king and also for his atoning work. It's an issue of loyalty. The loyalty of Jesus, Messiah, uh, Jesus' disciples is ultimately rooted in him and in the assembly, the new temple that he is building. So we've seen a question of loyalty to the temple. That's where it started. We've now seen the freedom of the sons from obligation. And third, and finally, in verse 27, we see this, the provision to not give unnecessary offense. Provision to not give unnecessary offense. So Jesus is still talking to Peter, and look at what he says in verse 27. We already started in on this. So the sons indeed are free. Verse 27, however... Not to give offense to them. Now, who's the them? The them is the collectors. And by extension, um, kind of the the temple uh, system, the temple leaders, those involved with its upkeep. So as not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find, uh, literally, it says a stator. And a stater, all you need to know is a stater was a coin worth uh, two of uh, the tax that, Jesus, that is being collected. It was worth four drachmas. The tax is two drachmas. So if you got four drachmas, you're, you've got enough to pay for two people. When you open its mouth, you'll find a stater. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. What is Jesus saying here? Well, first, what's his motivation his motivation is to not give offense to these temple people, these collectors, the temple kind of system. Now, why is that? That is very interesting because as we have seen in Matthew, Jesus is not afraid to offend people. He is not, uh, this is the same word he, that's used here, that's used, say, in Matthew 15, 1 through 20, when he calls out the scribes and the Pharisees and he calls them out for their hypocrisy and then the disciples come up to him and he's like, uh, don't you know, Jesus, that you just offended the scribes and Pharisees? And he's like, let them alone. Don't worry about it. Not afraid to offend there. It's the same word that's used here. But here he says, in order to not give offense, we're going to go ahead and pay. Now, why? Why is Jesus... Why is Jesus doing this? He's not paying from obligation. We know that because he says the sons indeed are free. He is paying to not give offense, unnecessary offense. Well, what offense would he give if he didn't pay? So imagine Jesus, now Jesus and his disciples, they're under no obligation. They don't have to pay this money. Uh, there's no obligation there. But what happens in that culture and in that time if they don't pay? If they don't pay, then what, what is being said, what Jesus is saying is he is not loyal to the temple and to God. Because paying this amount of money signals that you are a devout Jew and that you, um, you want to support the temple and you want to be able to support the, the services that allow you to draw near to God, to not pay that, 
means that you are saying, well, I, I don't value that. I don't value the temple system. I'm not loyal to it. I'm not loyal to God. It would send the wrong message. It would send the wrong message. Nothing was wrong with the temple system per se. God set it up. God said, here is how you will draw near to me. Uh, uh, through sacrifice, you will draw near to me. So there's nothing wrong with the temple per se. Jesus has no problem with the temple per se. But what he would do by not paying would be misunderstood. So in this case, he is willing, not because of obligation, but in order to not undermine the message and what he is saying, he is uh, willing to pay voluntarily. He's willing to pay voluntarily. Now, what's interesting also, obviously, is how he pays. Not only that he pays, but, and he pays voluntarily, not as one under obligation, but how he pays. Tells Peter, go to the sea, cast a hook. Now, every other time in the Gospels it's net fishing. This is like uh, hook fishing. It's just go as an individual, cast a hook, take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a stator. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Now, you scratch your head for a couple reasons. One, just as this is a strange situation. But also, uh, hey, don't you guys as disciples have like a money bag? References elsewhere in the Gospels that they have like a money bag for they can pay money out of for various things. People would support them. It's not like they had jobs, but people would support them. Why don't they pay the tax out of that? Why do they have this elaborate way? Well, I think the reason is because the way he's paying the tax signals both his connection to God and the disciples' connection to God. In other words, this is such a bizarre way to pay. Uh, it can only really be explained by God's providence, that God is providing for his people, for Jesus, and for his disciples to pay. I mean, in a certain sense, it's reminiscent of Jonah, right? Uh, God is able to direct a fish to swallow a man to spit him out on land to go to Nineveh, right? Well, here, God is perfectly able to direct a fish to swallow a stator to you know, have Peter catch it to pay the tax. It emphasizes God's control and connection with Jesus and his disciples, which is part of Jesus' whole point. You're the sons of your Father in heaven. You're not under obligation uh, and let's demonstrate that in a very practical way in how you're going to pay the tax. You're going to pay the tax in such a way that emphasizes God's miraculous provision so as to not cause offense to these people. Now, how in the world do we apply this? Because <laughs> we're pulling together. We kind of get a sense now, okay, this is what's going on. But how do we apply this? Well, first, let's back up a step and think about Matthew's audience. We always ask the question first, because Matthew was written to a particular audience, Jewish Christians in and around Palestine. Why is he writing this little section for them? Because they would have gotten the tax. They would have understood what was going on. Well, really, they would have faced the same dilemma as Jesus and his disciples would face. So you're a Jewish Christian you believe in the Messiah, you believe that the Messiah is building a temple, and the temple that he is building is the church, the assembly of people that confess him to be the Messiah. 
You believe that as a Jewish Christian. But you're also a Jewish Christian in Palestine. Meaning what? Uh, every year, those collectors, those two drachma collectors, are going to come to your door and say, hey, are you going to pay the ta- you're going to pay the tax, right? And now they're in a dilemma because, well, um, they understand that they are under no obligation because of who Jesus is and because the temple has shifted from the temple in Jerusalem to the temple being the church and being this people. This is where God is manifesting his presence on earth amongst his people, amongst the church, amongst those who confess Jesus to be the Messiah. But if they don't pay that tax it's going to be misunderstood, just like Jesus argued. And so effectively, what does this do? It says, go ahead and pay. Go ahead and pay. You're free. You don't have the obligation, but go ahead and voluntarily pay so as not to cause offense so that you can still have a witness with your Jewish brothers and sisters who haven't yet confessed Jesus to be the Messiah. That was the application for Matthew's audience. Okay, so now, what do we do for us? How do we draw implications for us? Sometimes people go to this section to talk about paying taxes, like you should pay taxes. You should pay your taxes. But I probably wouldn't draw that implication from this text. I would actually go to Romans, uh, Romans where it says, pay your taxes, and it says it pretty directly, pay your taxes. But here, what's the issue? It's not the tax per se, because this isn't going to Rome, which is the government at the time. It's going to the temple for its support. The fundamental issue in this section is loyalty. Loyalty and not causing unnecessary offense. So from that, we can draw a couple applications for us. First, as a Christian, your fundamental loyalty is to Jesus, the Messiah. That is where your fundamental loyalty loyalty lies. No ifs, ands, and buts. Jesus has made it very clear in the Gospel of Matthew, not even family takes precedence over loyalty to him. And in fact, as you draw near, as you confess him to be the Christ, the Son of God, you trust in his atoning work on your behalf, you are made part of brothers and sisters, you're made part of God's family, of sons and daughters in the community of disciples, a.k.a. the church, the temple that Jesus is building. The amazing reality is that in Jesus, those who repent, they turn their allegiance from sin and self. They turn from living their lives for themselves. They disown themselves. They take up their cross and follow Jesus. They entrust themselves to him for his atoning work on their behalf. We are then adopted, those who do such do so, are adopted into God's family as sons and daughters of God the Father, with Jesus as our older brother. So our loyalty is to him. And our loyalty is not only to him, but it's a loyalty to the people, to our family, the people that he gathers. When the local church gathers, I've said this before and I keep emphasizing it because it gives us a sense of how precious and how sacred it is. When the local church gathers, the Messiah's temple assembly is manifested on earth in a tangible way. This is why we prioritize the local church, why we prioritize gathering on the Lord's Day Sunday, because here is the temple that Jesus is building. Here is the people that Jesus is building. We are loyal to King Jesus, therefore we are loyal to each other as 
his family. It's why we do the things that we do in church. It's why we do baptism, and it's why we do membership, and it's why we do, this morning, the Lord's table. I'll emphasize that as we go to the table here shortly, that we partake in these things, we do these things because they are signs of our loyalty to King Jesus and by extension to each other as his people, as adopted sons and daughters of the king. Second, what we learn from this passage, so we learn about loyalty, learn about loyalty, but second, we also learn this. As a Christian, there is a time to give offense to others because of the truths of the gospel. Jesus has no problem offending people when it's right to do so uh, around core issues of uh, the faith. We see that him do that with the, uh, the, the scribes and the Pharisees. So there's, there's a time to give offense to others because of the truths of the gospel. But we do not give unnecessary offense that would undermine the gospel. And you've got to discern what, what situation is which. There's a time to give offense to others because of the truths of the gospel, but we do not give unnecessary offense that would undermine the gospel. It's the principle that you see actually played out in this text. It's the principle that we give up our freedoms for the aim of the advance of the gospel. That's what's going on here. Jesus is saying, the sons indeed are free. However, we're not going to offend these people. So we're going to go ahead and give up our freedom to not pay, and we're going to pay in this situation in order for the advance of the gospel. It's the same thing Paul does in 1 Corinthians 9, where he says, to a Jew, I became a Jew, to a Gentile, I became a Gentile, in order that I went, might win more. He gives up his freedoms in order to advance the gospel. So, yeah, I'm going to pay my taxes, one, because I'm commanded to, but also, I know my loyalty and my allegiance is not fundamentally to any of the kingdoms of this earth. My loyalty is not to the United States of America, ultimately. It is to King Jesus, ultimately. So I'm going to pay. Why? Because I'm obligated? Well, uh, yeah, my Lord obligated me to do so, but also so not to give offense. Here's another situation that might make it a little bit easier to understand. Let's suppose you have in your neighborhood a Muslim neighbor, uh, or maybe uh, you know Mormon or Jehovah's Witness, or someone who is not a Christian, Roman Catholic, someone like that. And you want to get to know them. Uh, let's, let's take the Muslim case. So, all right, I'm going to have a Muslim neighbor. I want to get to know them, and I want to ultimately be able to share the gospel with them. And uh, to explain that Jesus is not just a prophet, uh, he, is, he is actually the Son of God. He is God the Son incarnate. So you have your Muslim neighbor over for dinner. You have the freedom to serve pork and to eat pork. That's a bad idea. That's a really bad idea because you're going to offend your Muslim neighbor, not because of the gospel, but because of something else that is just, it's just unnecessary to offend over. That's the kind of thing that we're talking about. You got to know, when am I offending for the sake of the gospel, because of the gospel, because of the truth of the gospel, versus when am I willing to give up my freedoms to, in order to advance the gospel? And that is what Jesus is doing in this text. 
Now, like I said, this text sets up for Matthew 18, because what is Jesus really saying in this text? He's talking about loyalty. Where do your loyalties fundamentally lie? They lie in the new temple assembly that Jesus is building, the church. And then what does Jesus talk about in Matthew 18? He talks about, okay, in the church, how do you act together? How do you live? He's talking about this community in uh, 17, 24 through 27. It's centered around me. It's centered around the royal family, the sons and daughters that God has adopted. It's, that's how this co- uh, community is constituted. Our loyalty is to that temple. And then Jesus goes on and says, all right, uh, well, let's talk about that temple. And let's talk about how do you act? How do you live together in that temple? Which is exactly what Matthew 18, Jesus' fourth discourse, is going to deal with, which we will start with next week. But the main idea for our text this morning is this. Direct your loyalty to the Messiah's temple, but do not give unnecessary offense to outsiders. Let's pray, and let's pray as we transition also to partaking in the Lord's Supper. Lord Jesus, you are building your church. Um, it is manifested in a, in a partial way here this morning in this local church. Lord Jesus, what you have done is amazing. You are not only the glorious king who reigns over all and will reign over all, but you are the one who has died for your people to bring them near to the presence of God, nearer than any of the other temples in biblical history could have. And Lord, we long for that. We long to draw near to God. We long to draw near to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so that we might bask in your glory, bask in your presence. Lord, that is the aim and goal of our hearts, to know and to love, to worship, to delight in you. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have given yourself as an atoning sacrifice so that that can happen. Lord, pray that you would grow our loyalty to you and to your temple assembly, your church. Help us to live that out practically. Help us to not be swayed and sucked into other institutions of men. May our fundamental loyalty be to you and to your people. Lord, help us uh, to not give offense when it's not necessary to do so. Lord, help us to be bold and to be courageous for the gospel and to offend where necessary, but to not give unnecessary offense. Lord, give us wisdom to discern those situations we would ask because we desire for the advance of the gospel. Give it, make us a bold people and also a discerning people. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity this morning to, as your temple people, to partake in the new covenant sign, the Lord's Supper, your Supper, and pray that we would do so in an honoring way. Bless us as we go through this opportunity to partake together in your Supper. We ask these things in your name. Amen.